Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Welcome to a brand new week of insightful interviews, timely information, and biblical teaching, all designed to bring clarity to the chaos and remind us that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. This week, Doug Stoffer will help us revive the blessed hope. Larry Stamm will continue his series on effective evangelism in our world today. And today, we begin a two-part series with historian Bill Federer answering the question, Who is King in America? All of these outstanding topics and information are brought to you because of your continued prayers and support. Thank you so much for your faithfulness in standing with Watchmen on the Wall. Today, Bill Federer will begin to answer the question, who is king in America? And in the answer, we'll learn how to preserve the freedoms of America's republic. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. The question is, who is the king in America? And then, subsequently, we will find out who are the counselors to the king. Hi, this is Kenneth Hill, and I'll be talking with Bill Federer, who has this volume and DVD, Who is the King? Bill, welcome to the Watchman on the Wall broadcast. Hey, Kenneth. Great to be with you. It's so good to hear you again. You are... A very important voice in chaotic times. You give us a history, and you also give us and gives us a prophecy as time goes by about our nation and about the world. So this book, Who is the King in America, how does it relate to those of us who are following Jesus Christ in this nation? Well, that's a great question. And one of the things I did in answering that was I decided to look at all of human history, right? Writing was invented around three or 4,000 B.C., Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Take a stick, poke it in clay. That's the beginning of writing. There was even uh, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson in his Cosmos TV series, stood in the desert, and he said, it was here around 5,000 years ago between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that we learned how to write. So here's a secular astrophysicist saying 5,000 or 2,080, that would be around 3,000 or so B.C., which is not that long. You know, you think of it, if you round it out to 6,000, 6,000 years is just 60 people living 100 years each back-to-back. And we've all met someone who's lived 100 years, maybe a grandmother. We're talking 60 grandmothers, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. So the first record of civilization is Nimrod Tower of Babel. And Josephus, the Jewish commentator, said Nimrod wanted to build the tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. So it was sort of a defiant in-your-face attitude toward God. God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people scatter. But it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel. And every time it comes around, it's a little bit worse, because with military advancements, the kings can kill more people. So instead of cane kill and able with a rock, they can kill with bronze weapons or iron weapons or phalanx spears or scimitar swords or gunpowder. The weapon improves, but it's that same fallen nature. Anyway, these kingdoms keep getting bigger. All right, so you got 
the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and Attila the Hun, and Genghis Khan. And, but finally, the king of England had the biggest empire that planet Earth had ever seen. He was a globalist. He was a one-world government guy with him at the top. He was like a George Soros, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum. The king of England controlled all of India, a quarter of the world's population. Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and America. And America's founders decided they didn't like a globalist king telling us what to do, so they broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. And so kings have subjects who are subjected to the king's will. Democracies and republics have citizens. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-ruler, co-king. And so you're a citizen of America. You are a co-king of America. We pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. We're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. Right? And so when somebody protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. I protest this system where I participate in ruling myself. And so I go through in the book how this happens. you got Muslims conquering Christian Egypt, Christian Syria, Christian Turkey, uh, Christian North Africa. They conquer Spain. And they're finally at the gates of Vienna in 1529. And in the middle of all this, the Reformation starts. And the king of Spain tries to stop both. Reformation and the Islamic invasion and can't, and so he makes a deal with the Protestants. It's a big deal. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555, and it lets every prince decide what's going to be believed in his kingdom. So it worked. It stopped the Islamic invasion, but in the next century, the different kings of Europe believed different things, and so England was Anglican, Scotland was Presbyterian, Holland was Dutch Reformed. Northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran, Switzerland, Calvinist, and, and Italy, Spain, France stayed Catholic. And you get the picture. If you didn't believe the way your king did, it was considered treason, and you fled. So suddenly, Western Europe went from all Catholic, and then this Islamic invasion, and then the Reformation. And now, different kings believe different things, and people are migrating from one country to another. And those were the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. And I talk about it, every colony was started by a different denomination. Virginia was Anglican, Massachusetts was Puritan, Rhode Island was Baptist, New York was Dutch Reformed, Delaware and New Jersey were originally Swedish Lutheran, and then Pennsylvania Quaker, and they didn't get along and they tarred and feather each other, but then they worked together against the king during the revolution. But prior to that, so in this book we're tracing how you went from kings to what we have in America. And you have to understand the role of the church. So Henry VIII was originally Catholic, and then he wanted to divorce his wife, the daughter of the king of Spain. The pope says no. Henry says that he's just going to make himself his own pope. And he goes on to start the Church of England with him at the top. And he ends up having six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. He was not a really nice guy to be, to be married to. Well, his advisor suggested if he's serious about breaking from Rome, he should stop using the Latin Bible. Get himself an English Bible. The German princes have Martin Luther's German Bible. That helped them to break away. He needs an English Bible. He says, fine, get me one. And so it just so happens a few years earlier, he had William Tyndall burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And so now the king wants an English Bible. They take Tyndall's work polish it up. They call it the Great Bible. Henry orders a copy of it put in every church in England. He dusts his hands and he goes, that's it. We've broken from Rome. We've got our own English Bible. 
But something unexpected happened. People began to read it and began to compare what's in this Bible to this king divorcing and beheading his wives. And so a group starts that wants to purify the Church of England, their nickname, Puritans. And the king doesn't think he needs any purifying, so he persecutes them. And then there's another group that said it's beyond hope of purifying. We're going to separate ourselves. And they met in secret barns and basements, and they uh, eventually came to America, and we call them pilgrims. Now, so the king's attitude was, yes, you can read the Bible in your own language, but no, you still can't believe whatever you want. I'm the king. You've got to believe what I tell you to. So they passed the Act of Uniformity of Common Prayer. So you do not make up prayers, because you could make up one that's wrong. So the government wrote all the prayers down and printed them in a book called the Book of Common Prayer, and you just open it to the right page and read the prayer. And if you're caught having a little Bible study, making up your own prayers, the police will kick in the door like an FBI raid and arrest you and drag you before the star chamber, sort of like a January 6th type of hearing room, right, where they keep you there indefinitely forever, and, and they would twist your arm and under duress get you to confess to something that you didn't do. And they would cut off your ear and brand you on the face as a heretic. And then the government passed the Five Mile Act. If you were caught spouting opinions without approval of the king, particularly regarding your religion, within five miles of a town, you're a criminal, they'll drag you before the star chamber. Then they passed the Conventicle Act. It comes from the word covenant, where two or three are gathered in my name. I'm there in the midst, is what Jesus said. And so these are small group meetings. You cannot have a small group meeting because you could be planning an insurrection. And so they would bust in and arrest you. They later changed the name of it to the Riot Act because you could be planning a riot. And so they, the police would bust in, pull out a piece of paper, and read the Riot Act, which says everyone must immediately disperse or we'll put you in jail where you'll rot to death. One of the people captured during this was John Bunyan. And he had too many people at his Bible study without approval of the government. They drag him away. He spends 12 years in prison. I mean, talk about, like, the January 6th guys rotting away. And that's when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. One of the early Baptist founders that was imprisoned during this time was John Merton. And he dies in the Newgate prison. And they didn't give him anything to eat. And so a friend brought him a bottle of milk and instead of a cork had a piece of paper shoved in the top of the bottle. And so when the guard wasn't around, John Merton takes a splinter and dips it in the milk and writes out his pamphlets on the paper, and it dries, it's clear. And then he folds it up, puts it in the empty bottle, and his friend takes it home and unfolds it and holds it above a candle, and the heat of the candle turns the milk brown. And they can see what he wrote, and they typeset it and print the pamphlets. The king's like, how's he getting that written out of the prison? And so the early Baptists call it the milk of the word. And John Merton said, no man ought to be persecuted for his religion. The practice of Christ and his disciples teaches no such thing as compelling men by persecution and afflictions to obey the gospel. Another early Baptist separatist founder during this time was Thomas Hellwise. He dies in the Newgate prison. He said, the king is a mortal man and not God. Therefore, he has no power over the mortal soul of his subjects. For men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it, neither may the king be judged between God and man. In other words, if the king can stand there on the day of judgment, fine, believe whatever the government tells you. But if the government's not going to be there on the day of judgment, you are accountable to God for your own conscience. So this is what these believers had. So Roger Williams, who fathered Rhode Island, he said, God requires not a uniformity of religion to be enacted and enforced by any civil state. 
even William Penn, who was in the Tower of London prison, he said, force makes hypocrites, tis persuasion only that makes converts. So this is why these people fled. And so the pilgrims fled to Holland, they fled to America, and they got blown off course. They were going to land in Jamestown. And they're in Massachusetts. And you say, well, just sail down the coast. Well, off the coast of Cape Cod, it's really shallow. The sand goes out. You know, if you've ever been to the beach and you walk out like a quarter mile and it only comes out to like your waist and and so the, the boats get stuck, and in the storms they sink, and the pilgrims almost sink. And so the captain says, we're going to not sail to Jamestown. We're going to go back to Plymouth Rock, and everybody get off the boat. And this little church group, these little pilgrims say, okay, we have a question. Who is going to be in charge of us? The whole world is ruled by kings, pharaohs, sultans, czars, and you're telling us to get off the boat. There's no king-appointed person in our group. Who's going to tell us what to do? They do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. It says, we in the presence of God covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. This is a church group forming itself into a political group. And why did they do this? It says, to enact just and equal laws that shall be thought most meet or necessary, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power. Instead of top-down rule by kings, it's bottom-up rule by we. It's the difference between a dead pyramid and a living tree where every root and every little capillary root sucks in nutrients, help, helps keep it alive. It's the difference between divine right of kings, where you king rules through fear, or we the people. Kings did not believe in freedom of conscience. But over in, in America, our founders came over here for the freedom of conscience. So the kings in England were theocrats. They believed in theocracy. You believe what they believe, or they're going to burn you at the stake. In America, our founders did not believe that. They believed in freedom of conscience, and they believed in a democratically elected constitutional republic. And it's sort of interesting because they use the word patriotism, but now the left is trying to use the word nationalism. But in America, we want to preserve a nation where the individual gets rights and freedoms from God, and that the government's job is to protect those rights and freedoms. It's a bottom-up thing that we want to preserve in our nation, not the top-down stuff that was over in Europe or in communist countries. So the difference, if we could, both of them draw from the Bible, believe it or not, but the kings drew from the Bible with the King Saul and on period with the anointed king. The pilgrims and Puritans drew from the Bible from the pre-King Saul period, that first 400 years out of Egypt, which we don't appreciate, but it's the first instance in recorded human history of a nation with millions of people and no king. Right? And so it worked because every citizen was taught the law and every citizen was personally accountable to God to follow the law. And so here we have these pilgrims and then these pastors in New England that were setting up their little community governments. And one I highlight in the book, the title of the book is Who is the King in America? But it's Thomas Hooker. He and his church found Hartford, Connecticut. The church members come to him and say, Pastor, can you do a sermon on how we're supposed to set up our government? And so he gives a sermon in 1638 titled, The Foundation of Authority is Laid in the Free Consent of the People. Well, this is different than Europe, because the foundation of authority in Europe is the divine right of kings. The king claims that God chose him to be the anointed person. And so Thomas Hooker's sermon goes on, says, the privilege of election belongs to the people, and that's reflected in our Constitution, we the people. And so his sermon is used as the Constitution 
of Connecticut from 1639 up until 1818. So in Connecticut, instead of separation of church and state, it was the pastors and their churches that created the state. How could you say pastor don't preach on politics when it's his sermon that's their constitution? How could you say church members don't get involved in politics when all there was in Hartford was the church members? Right? His sermon goes on, and now it's adopted as the fundamental orders of Connecticut, their constitution. It says the people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. So all you have in Hartford is Thomas Hooker and his church. And the church members form themselves into a public state. Right? So here you have church members forming themselves into a political body. Now, why did they do this? Well, his sermon goes on. It's now the Constitution of Connecticut. It says that the people can join ourselves to be one public state in order to preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So they picked the form of government that would best preserve the gospel. So instead of, oh, you've got to get rid of the gospel, you know, because of separation of church and state. No, they picked the form of government that would best preserve the freedom to preach the gospel. So here we have, in New England, this situation of the people forming their communities. They had one building called the Meeting House, and that's where the pastor would teach the Bible, but that's also where they would conduct their city business. The word synagogue means meeting house. That's where the rabbi would teach the law, and that's where they would conduct their city business. I mean, why build a separate building just to talk about a different topic? And so when the revolution starts, the British send over a military governor, Thomas Gage, and he outlaws meeting houses. He says, democracy is too prevalent in America. We don't need the people meeting and deciding stuff. You just do what the government tells you to do. It's all top-down, where the Americans are by this time are saying, no, it's bottom-up. So Calvin Coolidge in 1926 says, the principles which went into the Declaration of Independence are found in the sermons of the early colonial clergy. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood, God, brotherhood of man, in order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunities to put them into action. Whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. And so this is one of the topics I talk about in the book. And I then go into the particular part, that first 400-year period of ancient Israel. But the bottom line is that in America we did a polarity change. And the polarity, instead of power coming top-down by the government's bottom-up rule by we, and so the word citizen means co-king. And so, in other words, you get to be the king of your life, and all of us together are the king of the country. And the politicians are your servants. You hire them, you fire them. So, you know, Romans 13, every authority has been set up by God, and you submit to the authority. Well, who's the ultimate authority in America? It's we, the people. The politicians are your, your servants. You hire them to do a job, and you fire them when they don't do the job. It'd be silly for a king to have to obey his janitor, you know, <laughs> it's a fascinating book. It's a very, very important book, especially for this time. With We have a government that's wanting to take unbelievable amounts of power that our founders never imagined. And also, it seems that they're willing to do that because they've forgotten what we've come from. We have lost our mind, more or less. History is the memory of a nation, John F. Kennedy wrote, That's the truth. We need the history of our nation not to be lost. And when they were tearing down the various statues and they were saying, we need to get rid of Christopher Columbus's statue, we need to get rid of everybody's statue, I thought, my, what are we doing? First of all, there were a group of 
loyal citizens that put their money together to fix that statute and build that statue. And the statue had been there helping us with our memory, helping us remember what they had done and who they were and all of that. And then we come through with some idea of destruction and destroying our history. Has that had a major effect upon us yet? Oh, it has. And it's a communist tactic. It's called deconstruction, where you separate people from their past, get them into a neutral where they don't remember where they came from, and then you can brainwash them into the future you have planned for them. We have much more from historian Bill Federer coming up on tomorrow's Watchmen on the Wall program. Who is the king in America? And who are the counselors to the kings? Discover the answers to these and many more questions in Bill Federer's explosive book and DVD entitled, Who is King in America? An overview of 6,000 years of history and why America is unique. Where did founders get their idea of people ruling themselves? What ingredients are needed for a nation to function without a king? Is the God of the Bible an integral part? What's the difference between a democracy and a republic? How do they rise and fall? Did political activists develop tactics to help them fall? Discover the keys to preserving the freedoms of America's republic. Order Bill Federer's book and DVD collection, Who is the King in America? When you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Now, here's James Collins with some much-needed encouragement from God's Word. Many years ago, a family moved to a little southern town. There were three children in the family, two older daughters and a little boy. The two girls had the responsibility of taking care of their little baby brother. One day, the girls wanted to go swimming. They lived in a little country town. The town did not have a city swimming pool. Instead, the town's children all swam in a little pond on the edge of town. The girl's mother said, Okay, you can go swimming, but you have to watch your brother. And you need to be careful with him, and you must always keep an eye on him. The girl said, Yes, ma'am, and they ran out the door, dragging their little brother behind. They arrived at the pond and jumped into the water. They had a great time. They were splashing and playing. However, they were new to the community. They didn't know any of the other kids. So they were a little standoffish. Most of the other boys and girls were gathered at one end of the swimming hole. The girls and their little brother were at the other end. As they were playing, the girls saw several horses just over a little hill. One said to the other, This pond is not very big. There are lots of kids here. The water is not very deep, and we'll be right back. Let's go pet those horses. Her sister said, okay. So they left their little brother unattended. They left their little brother alone, and they ran over the hill to pet the horses. They had only been gone a minute when they heard their brother thrashing in the water. He screamed, somebody help me. Help me, I'm drowning. Somebody help me, I'm drowning. I'm drowning. Somebody help me. They ran back to the pond as fast as they could, but they were too late. When they got there, they saw their little brother floating face down in the water. Their little baby brother had drowned. 
he was dead. The sisters were hysterical. Hot tears rolled down their faces. They turned to the kids and said, Why didn't you save our brother? You could hear him screaming. You were right here in the water with him. The other kids said, He was only a few inches from the bank. He could have just reached out and grabbed it. We told him over and over to just reach out and grab the bank. The girls said through their tears, Our little brother was blind. Our little brother was blind. He was blind. Every time you told him to reach, he reached the wrong way. He reached out in the wrong direction. All around us, there are people who are reaching. Some are reaching for alcohol. Some are reaching for drugs. Some are reaching for sexual sins. Some are reaching for immorality. Some are reaching for false religions. All around us, there are people reaching. In the Gospel of John, we read about a man who was blind from birth, and one day he met Jesus. The story shows us that there is a difference between seeing physically with your eyes and seeing the truth, knowing the truth clearly with your mind. The blind man from birth could only see after Jesus gave him the ability to see, after Jesus healed him. But the Pharisees, who could see physically all of their lives, still couldn't see the truth. They couldn't understand who Jesus was or what he was doing. It's not that the man blind from birth understood everything about Jesus. He answered many of the Pharisees' questions about Jesus by saying, I don't know. For people who follow Jesus today, that's often true as well. There are some things about Jesus that we know for certain, and there are other things about Jesus that just remain a mystery to us. But just like this man in John chapter 9, we can know without a doubt what Jesus does in our lives. We can know the truth about how Jesus forgives our sins. We can know the truth about how Jesus gives us hope for the future because of the promises in the Bible and because of the change that Jesus has made in our lives. We can know the truth about our Savior. That is something we can see clearly no matter what our physical sight is like. The Bible says in John 9.25, He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus healed a blind man. When he was questioned by the religious leaders, the man who had been blind said, I was blind, now I see. Jesus can still give sight to those who are blindly reaching. Reach out and take a hand that is reaching the wrong way and pull that hand toward the Lord Jesus Christ. This is James Collins reminding you that the Bible says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Discover the keys to preserving the freedoms of America's republic in Bill Federer's book and DVD entitled, Who is King in America? Order today, 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, Bill Federer will continue to lay out his case of why America is unique and what you can do to preserve the freedoms of America's republic. 
Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. Thank you.